Hi. Hi. Hi there. Hello. What's happening? Can't believe we're not all talked out yet. Mm. I could I could go for days. <laughs> I got the stamina of a champion. I got especially in the middle of quarantine, I feel like I could have talked to anyone about anything for hours. Like I feel like that's just me on night shift. Just like somebody please pay attention to me. <laughs> Notice me. Listen to me and engage with me. I am so alone. I'm sorry. Just for four months at a time. Yeah, Casey the Downer. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I'm on day shift. Um, what's going on? What's, how, are you, how are you? Oh, I'm all right. I'm going to try to get some work done to get back on Twitch. Oh, heck yeah. So, with a that VTuber. Like still freaks me out, but I'm happy for you. I hope you'll still watch, even though it freaks you out. Uh, I will lurk. Okay. You'll get a view, but I probably won't be watching. It's, I don't know what it is, ma'am. It just, it's like a little spooky to me. It's, it feels very real doll. Mm. That's the vibe I get. Not that they're, you know, I'm not kink shaming anybody. It's just not for me. Yeah. I want to design my own, like, fully from the ground up. I'm kind of working on that, but I haven't had the sit down and draw desire in a minute. Well, what have you been doing? I've been uh, doing needlepoint <laughs> and embroidery. Like, you, you, like, kind of go through waves of things. I do. Like you sew, and then we would write for a while, and then we haven't been doing that, and then you're not you're not drawing. So I'm like, what what is the wave right now? Yeah, embroidery and reading. Mm-hmm. I I don't really stop reading. It's harder when I'm on nights to stay awake when I'm reading. Yeah. Um, but I'm usually always reading something. So I I've been doing the audiobooks at work just because I can walk and listen to them. Yeah. But on day shift, I don't think I'll be doing as much of that. So I have I have book books. Yeah. Well, that's good, at least. I got some Jane Austen I'm getting into. That's one that's on my list. Uh, I want to read or listen to some of the Jane Austen I read books. Pride and Prejudice in college because we did the play. But that's the only Jane Austen I've read. So I have Sense and Sensibility and I have Emma. Yeah, I haven't read any of them, but I've watched the movies. I've not watched any of the movies, weirdly, except for... There was the one that was on Netflix for a while, and it had Billy Piper in it, and I can't remember which one it was. Mm. The newest uh, Emma is really good. Mansfield I mean, Park is the one with Billy Piper in it. But you've seen Clueless, so you've seen Emma. Yeah. It's literally just Emma. Yeah. Kind of like how Lion King is just the... Uh, Macbeth? Hamlet? Which one Hamlet. Is it? I was yeah. like, it's not Macbeth. I was like, which one is it again? I know it's one of them. I was like, mm, brain. Okay. Anyway. Hi. Hi. The show. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss The Strange and Unusual. This is episode 127 of our series, Seeking Out the Weird, the Unexplained, and the Devious from Around the World. I'm Roya. And I'm Casey. And today, Casey will be telling us a story of friendship, which I'm not yep. sure I believe. <laughs> It's true. I won't believe it until I hear the wee moos. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so you can find us on various social media platforms at some variation of The Strange and Unusual, um, as well as on Patreon at The Strange and Unusual, or not, sorry, nope, or patreon.com slash strange and unusual, mm-hmm. um, where we have a single tier now for some bonus episodes, access to our Discord, polls, other stuff like that. Um, and all of this information will be at the end of the episode in more detail, as well as in the show notes for your viewing pleasure. 
So, you want to hear the story of friendship, huh? Sure. Let's hit me with those wee-woos. Well, let me let me first start. The other day I was listening to some Mozart, specifically Symphony 25, conducted by Leonard Bernstein, which is uh, the first movement, the Allegro Cambrio, which was the part that I was listening to. It's the music that opens up Amadeus in the movie when Salieri is screaming his confession that he killed Mozart, right? And I'm like, oh my god, this is, this is a bop. Uh, <laughs> and the play and the film are both an account of Mozart's death and how in Antonio Salieri was involved, but they're entirely fictionalized. It never actually happened. So I thought, man, there is something that really did happen. And I'm going to tell you about it. And it involves my my buddy, Joseph Haydn. So wee woo, death, decomposition, classical music. <laughs> Friendship and dismemberment. Ah, yes. Two things that go hand in hand. So let me tell you a little bit. Dismemberment. <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about my friend, Joseph Haydn. He was born on March 31st, 1731. Franz Joseph, or jo- Joseph, I guess, because he's, you know, German uh, or Austrian. Uh, he was born into humble beginnings in Austria. That's right. And it is Aries season, everybody. He was an Aries. <laughs> We're in the mid-late part of the Enlightenment, Voltaire is philosophizing, uh, Hogarth is painting, Vienna was music or the musical hotspot of Europe. You know, we're having a great time out here in 1731. Uh, Haydn's father worked as a wheelwright building and repairing wooden wheels, and his mother had been a cook for local lord. He showed an aptitude for music from a very young age. He was like six years old, and a cousin who was a school principal and also a choir master offered to take him in and train him properly, which his parents accepted. By eight he was invited to be a chorister in the or in vienna which was huge by a musical director of the saint stephen's cathedral the capital's most prominent church at the time despite spending nine years there and taking part in countless performances he was never provided with proper training in musical theory and when he was 17 years old he was expelled for his voice changing oh so with no real money or skills he ended up living in an attic of a fellow musician where he took the odd musical job and really focused on teaching himself what he could by studying music on his own from the works of great composers like Bach. Eventually, he was hired as an accompanist for a uh, composer named Nicola Porpora uh, for voice lessons. Like he would play music for people who sang in these voice lessons. And Porpora would also help Haydn by giving corrections of his compositions. From there, he began working in noble households, offering various musical work, uh, which he would finally get him uh, the job that he would have for the rest of his life. Life. It was a cushy position of musical director for the noble Hungarian Esterházy family. Now, by the 18th century, the Esterházys were the largest landowners in Hungary, with a fortune larger than that of the Habsburgs, whom they supported as leaders of the Holy Roman Emperor Empire uh, between 1438 and 1740, and again from 1745 to 1806. And side note, despite one family holding the title for centuries, the Holy Roman Emperor was elected and wasn't actually a hereditary position. Which I think we talked about a little bit in the bad clergy episode with the Pope trial. Anyway, so this is not an episode about the Habsburgs, but I will say Maria Theresa was the ho empress uh, for most of Haydn's adult life, followed by her son, Joseph II. And of course, we know her daughter, Maria Antonia, a.k.a. Marie Antoinette, was Queen of France for much of this story as well. So just so you get a time period uh, idea. Yeah. And, you know, Marie Antoinette, if you know, you know. So anyway... <laughs> 
this position uh, with the Esterhazy family was a huge deal, and he served the prince uh, Miklaus for like 30 years. Haydn was quite the catch, too. He was popular uh, for music and described as uh, his, his work was described as light, elegant, and witty. His music is thoughtful and fun to listen to, and it was getting around. All throughout the 1760s, his fame spread across Europe. He was married to uh, a woman named Maria Anna Keller in 1760, and by all accounts, it was an unhappy marriage. Uh, I looked into why he married somebody he hated so much, and I found in an article that he was actually supposed to, or like he had fallen in love with her little sister, but her family decided that she would lead a religious life, and she was sent to a nunnery. And then the dad tried to pawn off his older daughter, Anna, and I guess uh, Haydn eventually uh, agreed. He was like, all right, fine, whatever, I guess. And according to classicalmusic.com, quote, it took five years of prompting by Herr Keller, uh, plus the influence of what one acquaintance coyly dubbed a a man's natural, a young man's natural urges. Uh, And then he finally agreed to marry her. And you might say he did it all for the the classical uh, Fred Dirtz one said. (laughs) Uh, He referred to her in his letters as the, quote, infernal beast. Wow. Which always just makes me think of Vlad from from What We Do in the Shadows when he talks about his ex-girlfriend. Oh, yes. (laughs) She didn't seem to understand his work or have much interest in music. And according to the Britannica, uh, she would use his music as liners for pastry pans and tear the sheets to make curlers for her hair. Rude. He is quoted as saying, quote, she doesn't care a straw whether her husband is an artist or a cobbler. And friends of Haydn called her a spendthrift and a religious bigot. So it's no surprise that there was there were no little Haydn's running around. Uh, and according to him, quote, my wife was unable to bear children. And for this reason, I was less indifferent towards the attractions of other women than I might have otherwise been. He had a years long affair with uh, Luigia Polzelli. I think is how you say it. Uh, she was a mediocre mezzo soprano who was set to be let go by Prince Miklaus. Uh, but he ended up keeping her because of Haydn. He also kept her husband on the payroll. <laughs> yeah, she was she was 19 and he was 48. So it's gross. But you know, he, they were together for some time. Anyway, uh, remember how I said there were no little Haydn's running around? It may not be entirely true, but I digress. While he worked for the Esterhazy house, he traveled to Vienna with the prince and he met a young composer who you might have heard of. His his name was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. He's just kind of like a small guy in, in the grand scheme of things. Oh, yeah. Insignificant. Uh, yeah. Mozart would have been about 25 at the time, but the two admired one another and became fast friends based on their correspondence. Um, some say that they even inspired each other in like their, their different works of music. Um, he had some friends with uh, people within the Esterhazy house. He became friends with a guy named uh, Joseph Karl Rosenbaum. And this is not the same uh, Joseph uh, Rosenbaum that was the victim of Kyle Rittenhouse. And take that, Judge Bruce Schroeder. I called him a victim. Uh, it's because, imp- yeah, fuck that guy. Uh, and he's also he was also employed by the Esterhazy House uh, as the controller of stabilized or stabling accounts. So he was an accountant. He was just a cool accountant being friends with Haydn. But it's the Enlightenment and he's interested in art and music and philosophy. And he ends up uh, being pals with Haydn. Haydn eventually introduces him to a woman named Therese Gasmer, who was a soprano who had been instructed by Antonio Salieri and later played the role of the Queen of the Night in early performances of Mozart's The Magic Flute, or Die Zoberflote. I, I said that really wrong. Anyway. <laughs> the two fell in love, but Rosenbaum needed the okay from Pin- Prince Miklaus to get married. Miklaus to- told Rosenbaum he'd have to think about it and for him to submit a request in writing. Rosenbaum wrote in his diary, quote, a most unpleasant day of which there are so many in my life. <laughs> 
Same. You know, he's really well adjusted and Mood. definitely not a drama queen. Haydn puts in a good word for Rosenbaum, but the prince is like, yeah, that's going to be a no for me, dog. And Rosenbaum is pissed at the prince. Let me just say, dude, this guy knows how to hold a grudge, which is important later. Okay. They they wed anyway. Rosenbaum loses his job. They, uh, oh, what was I say? Oh, yeah. So the, uh, they got married anyway in uh, 1800, which just so happens to be the year that the infernal beast died. But anyway, jumping back a little bit, Prince Meek. Klaus died in 1790 the the older one the younger one is the one who told Rosenbaum he couldn't get married but before the younger one took over his brother Antal decided to dismiss all of the court musicians save Haydn who continues to receive his salary as well as a willed pension from the previous prince and because he doesn't he wasn't needed for music under Antal uh at the Esther Hazy estate uh, Haydn starts traveling he spends time in England he becomes an even bigger celebrity and in 1790 uh, and again in 1792, he met another young composer, again, very insignificant little guy named uh, Ludwig von Beethoven. I don't know. I don't, I'm not really familiar with him, so it's hard to say his name. Uh, but Beethoven did what any young artist meeting a celebrity would do and showed some of his work. He was like, hey, you're an artist. I'm an artist. Check out my work, you know. And Haydn was impressed. Uh, he told Beethoven that if he came to Vienna, he would gladly take him as a pupil. But it wasn't great for Beethoven. Haydn, or, Haydn. Haydn was kind of crazy busy with all of his own work and he wasn't the best tutor so Beethoven would take lessons with other teachers secretly so he didn't offend Haydn but was still working with Haydn just as irregularly as Haydn could. In 1809 Napoleon's forces invade Vienna and Haydn the old fart refuses to leave his home so because he's fucking Haydn Napoleon actually puts a guard in front of his door and says that's cool you could stay there and I read that a French officer actually came and sang an entire aria to Haydn outside of his door. He died peacefully on May 31st, 1809 at 77 years old, which is quite an accomplishment, you know, at that time. He remains one of the most prolific figures in classical music, often called the father of the symphony and the father of the string quartet. Throughout his career, he produced 108 symphonies, 68 string quartets, 176 trios for various instruments, 32 uh, divertimenti, 47 piano sonatas, 20 operas, 14 masses, 5 oratorios, and 2 cello concertos. Wow. With the war on the occupation going on there wasn't much time for a big state funeral so Haydn was buried just two days after uh, he died in a simple grave there was a huge outpouring of public grief but Vienna could not properly mourn their beloved composer so Prince Miklaus II who had taken over after Antal's death like I mentioned uh, and he had revived the music scene at the Esterhazy house uh, he promised to give Haydn the burial he deserved as soon as it could be managed 10 years passed the Duke of Cambridge is visiting Prince Miklaus II there's a performance of Haydn's creation piece and during the uh, following banquet the Duke's gonna stand up and offer a toast and he says hey Prince Miklaus you're so lucky to have had Haydn in employ in his lifetime and now you also own him in death but Prince Miklaus didn't own Haydn because he was still buried in that simple grave in Vienna so Miklaus goes oh fuck yeah I have to do that right and he's like didn't we order like a nice casket or some shit and the servants are like yeah it's outside the kitchen it's just sitting there (laughs) it's a marble casket it's just been chilling and the family so they get this big marble tomb in 1820 the prince attends as Haydn's grave was brought from the ground the coffin is open and inside was Haydn's body except in place of Haydn's head there was just a white powdered wig (laughs) what (laughs) if this was the opening of a movie this is the part where it'd be like record scratch freeze frame Haydn says yep that's me I bet you're wondering how I got here (laughs) And we 
rewind back to 1808, the year before Haydn died. The Rosenbaums, you remember them? Well, they're members of high society now. Through through Teresa, Joseph's wife, they got to know a lot of people. Joseph hears about Haydn's failing health and he starts making plans. He's like, that head, it's going to be up for grabs soon. I want that head. Comes up with this plan with a friend of his named Johann Peter. They set up a test run because Betty Roos, who was a German uh, actress who died in October of 1808, died of an infection after giving birth to her daughter. They bribe a grave digger, Jacob Demuth, to give them her head, which he does. And then they start test defleshing techniques on her skull. What? (laughs) They were testing. They had to test. There's science happening it's I mean, happy they tested i guess well they used quicklime and it cleaned the skull but it also made it very brittle so then they enlist the help of rosenbaum's friend dr leopold eckhart to provide the dissection of the head and provide the proper medical facilities that sort of thing and remember this guy dr eckhart because he's important later come back to the future it's may 31st 1809 Haydn has died it's a hot summer day uh the hinsthumer cemetery there are a handful of people there uh among them yosef rose he wrote in his diary that after the grave was covered he spoke to the jovial grave digger demuth about the removal of Haydn's head just a side note uh roya if you want my head that's cool but you might have to rock paper scissors with it with aj for it <laughs> sorry uh he wrote quote i arranged everything in detail appointed tomorrow evening for the removing or for removing the head and early sunday morning for delivering it there was potential for uh some issues with this plan <laughs> And Rosenbaum came to get the head on the first night. Demuth wasn't there. He wasn't there the second night either. And when Rosenbaum went the third night, he feared that the plan had fallen through. But Demuth was back and he had the head. He had missed the appointment because he was recovering from a beating. That'll do it. So this really bummed Rosenbaum out because he really wanted to spend some quality time with his pal, Haydn, his his head anyway. Uh, Quote, after we paid the gravedigger his fee, the grave was opened and the head taken off. It was the eighth night after the burial. Demuth hands over over the head which has now been decomposing in the heat of june it was wrapped in a bundle of cloth and passed over to rosenbaum now if you're a longtime listener of this show you should know the steps of dk that a body goes through uh, at this point but i don't really want to get into it now so here we go i'm just going to tell you what happened with Haydn's head uh so Haydn would have still been mostly a solid mass at this point he wasn't uh i don't know what i wrote there <laughs> Oh, okay. He wasn't a set of aged remains with a detached head. Uh, Demuth would have really had to work for it. Um, so he probably hacked at it a few times to get it off. Uh, Rosamom opened the shroud that he had bundled the head in. And guess what? He fucking pukes. He wrote in his diary, I had to vomit. The stench had overcome me. Yeah. He described the bloated head having a tinge of green from the putrefaction. I would say that like the head, the head would be like the second stinkiest area. Yeah. With the, with the brains and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you got a lot of like mucous membranes and stuff Mm -hmm. in the head too. Yep. So the head was taken to Vienna General Hospital, presumably the connections of Dr. Deckhart. um, And it was dissected and he stayed the whole time because, you know, he didn't want to leave his friend there to go through this himself uh so he said in his diary the dissection lasted for one hour the brain which was of large portions stank the most terribly of all 
After the dissection, Rosenbaum was effectively in the clear. He'd gotten away with the theft. Nobody would recognize him now. The skull was sent to be cleaned and bleached. And after all the flesh had been carved away, whatever was left would have been burned off the skull with acid or by boiling in water and then was displayed in a fancy case at Rosenbaum's house. But he did share custody with Peter, Peter who helped him out, Johann Peter. Uh, uh, he, he also liked to have the skull and apparently would display it in his garden. Now you may be asking yourself, why would this accountant want Haydn's head? Well, I mentioned at the top of the episode and throughout uh, that we are in the Age of Enlightenment. A new scientific study had hit the scene, developed by Viennese physician Franz Josef Gall in 1796 and was popular throughout at least the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and that study was called phrenology. All my fellow Our Flag Means Death people are having a good chuckle right now. Yes, phrenology. And that brings us to a brand new segment I like to call a few seconds of pseudoscience. <laughs> I feel like that needs to be the the few seconds of science theme, but like in an E minor key. <laughs> <laughs> Well, phrenology is supposed to be the study of the confirmation of the uh, skull as indicative of mental faculties and character traits. Essentially, it was thought that an individual's character and abilities could be figured out based on the size and shape of various bumps on their head. Gall came up with this theory after noticing that his peers, who could memorize long passages with ease, all seemed to have prominent eyes and large foreheads. Thus, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, he theorized that an organ of verbal memory must sit behind the eyes and if one ability was indicated by an external feature others might also be so this quote science has or was based on five pillars one the brain is the organ of the mind whoa <laughs> well no because at the time it was like your soul and your is is like what yeah. powers you so he was saying no it's your brain uh so that was he was a heretic <sighs> Two, human mental powers can be analyzed into a definite number of independent faculties. Three, these faculties are innate and each has its seat in a definite region of the surface of the brain. Four, the size of each such region is the measure of the degree to which the faculty seated in it forms a constituent element in the character of the individual. And five, the correspondence between the outer surface of the skull and the contour of the brain surface beneath is sufficiently close to enable the observer to recognize the relative sizes of those several organs by examination of the outer surface of the head. You follow? No. Okay. The gray... <laughs> The areas that would usually be like felt up with your fingers or hands, or sometimes they had a fancy capillary that was called a craniometer. Um, these different organs of the mind worked similarly to muscles and could be exercised or starved the way you do with your muscles as your character. So if you really worked at being good at music, you might have a bigger music spot. Uh-huh. Gall started collecting human and animal skulls because he wanted to see if it was the same for animals. And he did find that there were some similarities, but also many differences because they're different shapes. He did some of his earlier studies on and sizes. Yeah. <laughs> He did some early studies on friends, but of course, he also tested prison inmates and asylum patients, determining that some traits that he claimed to detect were, quote, 
criminal. Uh, so this was actually used in fields of criminology and psychiatry and psychology for a time. And so it's no surprise that some phrenologists use this as a way to perpetuate stereotype based on gender and race. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's said that practitioners would use their study to argue both for and against the abolishment of slavery. Johann Kasper Spurzheim <laughs> and George Combe were collaborators who added to the study mapping out traits of the skull. Uh, I'm just going to name a couple because I think they're really good. Uh, there's a spot for uh, propensities, adhesiveness, acquisitiveness, Ad- combativeness. Adhesiveness? Adhesiveness. Your willingness to stick to things? Stick to things. <laughs> uh, secretiveness and love of life are all your propensities. Not all of them. There's a bunch of propensities, but that's just a couple. Uh, there was also a spot for sentiments, and that was categorized into lower and higher sentiments, or lower and superior sentiments. And that's uh, the lower sentiments are common to both people and animals, like cautiousness, self-esteem, and truthfulness. Whereas the superior sentiments are only for people and lacking in, in animals. Benevolence, uh, conscientiousness, firmness, hope, wit, or mirthfulness. I'm like, okay, I've met plenty of mirthful dogs. <laughs> And also the idea that like a squirrel can be honest or a fucking liar is great yep. to me. <laughs> yep. Intellectual faculties, uh, these are known to the external world and uh, and as physical qualities uh, like coloring, eventuality, individuality, language, order. And also your five senses, so touch, taste, sight, smell, hearing. Uh, there's reflecting faculties. These produce ideas of relation or reflect. They minister to the direction and gratification of all the other pow- powers. You have casualty, comparison. It's it's a great it's a great pseudoscience. Yeah. <laughs> and from this was decided how good at math you are, how much of a criminal you are, uh, or had the potential to become, how horny you are. Like all of these are decided by the bumps <laughs> in your head. People in the Victorian era would use phrenologists as matchmakers, helping them decide who to marry or who to, who they should hire to fix their sink, like that sort of shit. <laughs> it was bizarre. And Poe, like other other writers and, and people of the time, like Poe, uh, referenced phrenology in a lot of their artistic works. That doesn't mean there weren't skeptics, because there were. Uh, the Smithsonian article I found claimed that Mark Twain was a skeptic and was horrified when a phrenologist known as Lorenzo N. Fowler told him, that his skull had a cavity where humor ought to be. <laughs> Burn. And John Quincy Adams uh, was said to have wondered how two phrenologists could look at each other in the eye without laughing. Eventually, the study was debunked, but even as late as the 1930s, it was used in Rwanda to argue for ethnic superiority including uh, during genocide. Wow. And in the 1990s, some Roman Catholic priest in Belgium was promoting a resurgence of the study, which is weird because, again, he was considered a heretic at the time of uh, Gal Gal was uh, when he was making this because they argued so much that the soul was where the value of your personhood came yeah. from. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting because like a lot of pseudosciences, there is there is some merit to what he's saying. Like the brain is what runs, is one mm-hmm. of the, the main as- primary aspects that runs your body. Like your brain and your heart, you know, facilitate the yeah. the running of all the re- the entire rest of your organs and senses. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think, you know, like obviously it's one of those things like you're trying to explain. It's like how ancient cultures tried to explain like volcanoes and yeah. eclipses and stuff like that. It's like, why is this person so good at music just inherently? They're just born gifted. But yep. then this person cannot find a key on a piano to save their life. 
you know? And that's, like I said, back in in 1809, Rosamond and Peter, like many others, were fascinated by phrenology, and they wanted to get up close and personal with the genius of Haydn's head. Yeah, I mean, how many times would you have a chance to study someone's head like that, you know? And another thing is, honestly, grave robbing wasn't super uncommon at the time. Again, enlightenment, we're using corpses to study anatomy. There's a lot of illegal buying and selling of corpses going on in this time. So Rosenbaum wanted to see firsthand what made Haydn's genius what it was. And he seemed to find nothing morally wrong with the idea of stealing Haydn's head or purchasing Haydn's head, I should say. And they would have gotten away with it if it weren't for that meddling Duke of Cambridge reminding the prince that Haydn was in an anonymous grave instead of his marble tomb. So the prince is hissed. Uh, There were a number of spectators and this huge thing is going on as they take Haydn out of his grave to to put him into the marble tomb. And somebody had swiped Haydn's head right out from under his nose. Meanwhile, Rosenbaum has not been quiet about this and has been like, he's got his friend's head just chilling in this beautiful case in his home that basically just has a giant sign that says, this is the skull of Joseph Haydn just in his house. Um, He was showing it off to other people he was telling people of high society and phrenology pals like people knew that he had Haydn's head uh, and despite this he thinks nobody will suspect him that is until Johann Peter comes to see him all paranoid and thinking about going to the fuzz he was discovered pretty quickly but Rosenbaum still has this grudge against the prince remember and so he really wants to keep Haydn's head so when the police come he hides it where does he hide it you ask well he put it under the mattress but then he decides it's too noticeable so he has his wife Teresa lay in the bed and pretend to have her period the police obviously do not want to remove the wife with the period from her bed because it's it's the 1800s yeah and that's how we do so the police keep coming back and Rosenbaum finally caves he says you know what I'm sorry he this this doctor Dr. Eckhart it was his idea the whole situation was on him I just got this because he died recently and I have the skull now so I'm just gonna give it back to you and the cops gonna cop they they take the skull they say hey cool thanks man don't worry about it we're just gonna take this and you have a good day except that it wasn't the skull of 77 year old Haydn this was the skull of an older child or teenager so the cops come back and they say hey we know you gave us the wrong head could you please give us the real skull this time and Rosenbaum's like oh whoops sorry my bad here you go here's the real one here it is um and it was just another one from his collection of skulls because that's how people did things then and this one seems to pass the old man test and the skull is buried in secret with the rest of Haydn's remains because the prince was embarrassed he didn't want people to know that he didn't actually have Haydn's head so now 140 years have passed that's how it was this random ass head was buried in a tomb with Haydn's body uh-huh. Haydn's real skull stayed with Rosenbaum until his death when it was passed to Johann Peter uh, then it was passed along to a couple other people uh, there was like a doctor and a lawyer involved somewhere but it eventually ended ends up in the care of the uh, Gesellschaft der Musikfreunde, the Society of the Friends of Music in Vienna, also called the Musikverein, where it sat on the top of a piano. Now, I've heard two versions of what happens next. One is that the secretary of the Musikverein starts to have the feel-bads and is like, we should finally return this hand. Yeah. And another one is that the Esterhazy house found out that they had the head and said, you're going to give us that head back. (laughs) 
But regardless, arrangements were made for reuniting the head and the body in the 1930s. But that pesky Second World War was a bit of a damper. So it wasn't actually until June 5th, 1954, that a huge state event takes place. And the president and the chancellor and foreign diplomats are there. The head was delivered on a bed of flowers. The Hamburg Philharmonic was playing his famous creation notorio. There's a giant procession. The head is lifted by an Esterhazy ancestor, shown to everybody in attendance in the church, and put into the tomb, restoring Haydn to his full form and ending the saga of Haydn's head. Now, what happened to the second head, I hear you asking? Well, nearly 150 years had passed, and uh, the authorities had no way of determining who this skull was, who it belonged to. So Haydn is buried with two heads. They figured, been together this long, might as well keep them together. And it's been that way for the past 68 years. And that is the story of how Haydn has two heads. A lot of people have said that Haydn has a, had a really good sense of humor. Like, there's this one symphony, it's called the uh, the Surprise Symphony, or the Symphony of Surprise, people call it. And it's like, you're just listening to this music, it's real soft and sweet and pretty, and then... <laughs> He he intentionally did that to wake people the fuck up if they had fallen asleep. (laughs) And there's another one. It's the joke quartet. And he has a bunch of like fake stops. So people will start clapping and then he just keeps going. (laughs) That's wonderful. It's hard to say what he would have thought. But a lot of people think he might have thought this was a pretty funny thing. (laughs) So that's the story of friendship and how one guy really just wanted his friend's head <laughs> talking about the um intentionally like putting a, a false stop into mm. a piece made me think of uh, a similar thing from a drag queen that i enjoy a lot where she'll do um a performance where she'll do a dress and wig reveal oh and she and keeps going and she just keeps revealing into the same dress and wig oh i love that for like the full duration of the song she does like six reveals and it's all the same That's dress <laughs> love that for like four minutes well, i hope you enjoyed that that was that's been on my list for a while but again just like you said last time there's what wasn't a really good place to stick that in anywhere yeah. unless we went back to like austria or germany i could talk about it yeah but thank you everyone for joining us today in the story of true friendship i don't think that. <laughs> We hope that you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. So just send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. And if you are sending in a story, we just ask that you put listener story in the subject line so we can sort through those a little more easily. Do you know anybody who's stolen a head? Do you know anyone who has a severed head of their friend in their house? Yeah. Call the police. Yeah, that's probably something you should do. Um, you can also find us on Instagram at strange underscore unusual underscore podcast or personal accounts Roy Rampage and Calamity KC. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual at Calamity KC and at Roy Rampage. We're also on Facebook to search for the strange and unusual podcast. If you'd like, you can join us over on patreon.com slash strange unusual. Um, like we said earlier, we have one tier now. Um, access to some bonus episodes, access to our discord, access to our future plans as far as watch parties and potentially uh, group games. Maybe one of us will get like jack- Jackbox games or something if we don't have it already. Something that we can play with everybody. Yeah. Um, 
But we understand right now that times are tough. Um, and if you are unable to support us on Patreon, we totally get it. Uh, but if you can, just like, share, subscribe, rate, review. Um, five-star reviews will get read on the podcast. I'm only aware of them being, of reviews being able to be written on Apple Podcasts. But if they are somewhere else and we're just not seeing them, let us know where we can go and check those out too. Um, if you're, you know, writing them on Google Podcasts or Podbean, or wherever wherever else you can write a review um just let us know if we're missing those so that's not our intention um but yeah so share us with your friends share us with your enemies share us with your decapitated best friend please do (laughs) headless horseman style spooky season oh man now i want to watch uh sleepy hollow yeah because you said decapitated and all i I heard was uh johnny depp in my head going decapitated (laughs) because he says it really funny all right well until next time deuces beaches bye (laughs) bye